0: The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4 The Medieval World, Episode 18 The Battle of Roncevaux Pass. This week's episode finds us at the Roncevaux Pass, which is a mountain pass in the far north of Spain in the community of Navarre, leading through the Pyrenees mountain range. Heading south from the pass takes you to the Spanish city of Pamplona, while heading north takes you to the French border. Very little is known about the people who inhabited this area before the arrival of the Romans. With its close proximity to the Bay of Biscay, this area of the Pyrenees was at the western end of the land bridge between Spain and France which was the opposite side that was traversed by the Carthaginians led by Hannibal when they invaded the Roman Republic. The Carthaginians and the Romans were much more interested in the lands of the Pyrenees that bordered the Mediterranean Sea so the peoples of this area of the Pyrenees were somewhat left alone. The Romans started learning more about this area and the people who lived there during the 1st century BCE. They identified that they spoke a strange language totally unlike the Latin languages and dialects that the Romans spoke. These people that the Romans discovered in this area are known as the Vascons. We don't really know anything in particular about the pre-Roman Vascons because each time that they were encountered and they were documented there were ambiguities and contradictions that have to make the reader wonder whether each document addressed the same race of peoples on each occasion. It is quite imaginable that various tribes that were neighbours to each other and the Vascons were displacing each other and interacting with each other and if the Romans were not there to witness it then it would not be recorded. The Romans annexed this territory during the 1st century BCE, quite possibly around the time of the 1st Triumvirate and the conquests of Julius Caesar in Gaul. The area inhabited by the Vascons was incorporated into the huge Roman province of Hispania Tarraconensis, while the area to the north of the Roncesvalles Pass was known as the Roman province of Gallia Aquitania. Each of the provinces would have been occupied by a huge number of distinct tribes. Before the days of the first triumvirate, one of its members, Pompey, was sent to Hispania to deal with the problem caused by the popularis supporting Quintus Sertorius. Pompey created a military base camp just south of the Pyrenees, and this base came, became the foundation of the city of Pamplona, originally called Pompiello in honour of Pompey. So we can determine that the city's modern name is based on the fact that Pompey was the man to found it. Even with the Romans occupying this territory, we still seem to have very little information about the indigenous Vascons. And this might just be because it was not an area of great conflict or consequence and the Vascons were just one of a great number of peoples within Roman territory. Roman military movements were much more concentrated on their northern and eastern fronts so much of our knowledge of non-Roman occupants and neighbours centres around the peoples of those areas instead. During the Roman crisis of the 3rd century Gallic lands instigated a secession from the Roman Empire and existed as a Gallic Empire from the year 260. The lands of the Vascons were loosely connected to the secession but were among the first to rejoin the Roman Empire before the Gallic Empire ceased to exist in 274. The 4th century saw the Huns invade Europe which led to some considerable Barbarian migrations westwards into the lands of the Romans from the start of the 5th century. The Visigoths were granted lands north of the Pyrenees, but it would be the Suebi who would enter the territory of the Vascons and start ravaging the towns such as Pamplona. The Suebi would continue onto the west coast of the Iberian Peninsula. This was somewhat typical of the lands of the Vascons going forwards, as the ambitions of the various factions did not lie in these lands, so generally peoples would pass through on the hunt for something different to what the Vascons could offer. Later in the fifth century, the Visigoths under King Euric crossed the Pyrenees with the intentions of preventing Sweaty expansion at the expense of Roman territory. But so weak had the Western Romans become by now that the Visigoths simply kept the territories for themselves. Once again, the city of Pamplona was quite a low priority. So the Visigoths conquered it and moved on, leaving the Vascons to govern themselves, albeit in a very loose manner. The Franks The Franks were a group of Germanic tribes whose earliest known origins are on the banks of the Rhine River from the 3rd century. They had a relationship with their Roman neighbours due to them living on the fringes of Roman territory. Some of the tribes were actually allowed to settle Roman lands due to the fact that they provided services to the Roman Empire and therefore they can be considered to be Roman Federati, meaning that they had a treaty with the Romans. This cannot be applied to all of the Frankish tribes, however. Some Frankish tribes remained on the outside looking in and would remain in opposition to the Romans. We even find different Frankish tribes in opposition to each other due to the diversity of their relationship with the Romans throughout their culture. The key time for the development of the Franks came after the overspill of Germanic tribes into Roman territory during the 5th century after the arrival of the Huns in Europe had displaced them. The weakening of the Romans in Gallic lands enabled Germanic tribes such as the Vandals, the Suevi, and the Visigoths to carve out areas of control in Western Europe. There would be a vacuum that would appear in Northwest Europe that the Franks would take advantage of thanks to a highly influential king called Clovis who successfully united Frankish tribes and took control of the last remaining Roman territory of Gaul to create their own Frankish kingdom. Glovis would be a member of the Merovingian dynasty of Frankish rulers, often looked upon romantically as the first ancestral monarchs of France, although the Frankish kingdom would go on a twisting journey towards becoming the modern kingdom of France that we would recognise in later centuries. Clovis managed to expand his territories to incorporate most of the lands of the former Roman provinces of Gaul, not too dissimilar to the area of the modern country of France. The Frankish tradition of succession dictated that after a monarch passed away, that the kingdom should be split between his sons. Although this could be criticised for being quite dangerous for the survival of the Frankish kingdoms that were created by this succession, it would also mean that the strongest of the sons would often be able to win overall control of the Frankish realms and rule as a strong leader and this could be why the Franks outlasted the Gothic kingdoms of Western Europe for example, although this is just speculation. Another result of the Frankish succession tradition is that there would sometimes be children exceeding to Frankish thrones, who would rely on statesmen to act as regents until the kings came of age. This would enable these statesmen called mayors of the palace to achieve a level of power that would rival that of their kings, and they would be reluctant to relinquish that power when the kings came of age. This would lead to an age in Frankish history of ineffective kings, some of which were kept in captivity ruling in name only while their mayor of the palace was actually the effective monarch of the land. The most well-remembered of all the Frankish mayors of the palace was a man called Charles Martel. Charles would reunite the Frankish kingdoms under one rule and would restore its military prestige by being a brave and fearless ruler. When the powerful Islamic Caliphate of the Umayyads stormed into Europe across the Strait of Gibraltar and conquered the Iberian lands of the Visigoths, it would be down to the military strategy of Charles Martel to halt their progress by standing firm in his lands and preventing further Umayyad raids of Frankish territories. The Umayyads would be forced to return south of the Pyrenees to the Iberian Peninsula again. On the death of Charles Martel, his son Pepin the Short would continue to rule the Franks as the mayor of the palace with great authority, aiding the Pope in Rome by enabling him to enforce the papal brand of Christianity in the Italian peninsula and conquering the Lombard kingdom. Pepin's relationship with the Pope allowed Pepin to win papal approval of his claim to be the true king of the Franks and allow him. The authority to refer to himself as such, legally deposing the last Merovingian monarch and becoming the first Frankish king of the Carolingian dynasty, the descendants of Charles Martel. The Basques, the Basques or the Basque people have retained much of their identity throughout the last 2000 years and right up until the modern age despite various invasions and successions of the Iberian Peninsula. Certainly when the Romans encountered them during the last age of the Roman Republic, Roman priorities were not to colonise or subjugate the Basque people. So they and their comparatively infertile lands were overlooked and left to be. The Basque people resided in the old territory of Vasconia and are believed to be a particular group of tribes among the recorded Vascons mentioned earlier in the episode. The history of the Basque people is therefore subject to debate due to the sketchiness of the evidence leaving it open to interpretation, but we certainly believe that the terms Basque and Vascons are cognate words deriving from the same origin. Due to the Basques often being left alone by different peoples who migrated into Iberia, they would often be left to retain their distinct culture and their pagan practices. The Swebi and the Vandals passed through Vasconia and then the Visigoths later in the 5th century. It was at this point that it became harder to distinguish the Basque people among the area referred to by the Romans as Vasconia, due to the fact that we lose the comparatively literate Roman referencing and have to rely on Germanic sources which were few and far between and only referred to the people of this area as a collective. So we go back to our knowledge of the Basque people being among the population of the whole of Vasconia. The Basque language also survived this period and we know that the Basque peoples referred to themselves as dunak referring to the land that they occupied as Euskal, with Basque and Vasconia being Latin-derived words, and Euskal not even believed to be Indo-European, which amazingly means that the Basque culture not only survived the migrations of the last 2,000 years, but also survived the Indo-European migrations that gave rise to the pre-Roman Celtiberian cultures of Iberia. It was at this point that we see the rapid expansion of the Franks through King Clovis that would bring Frankish influence all the way down to beyond the Pyrenees which meant that they would assimilate a large portion of the Vascons, and this would give rise to what would become the Duchy of Gascony. The Frankish conquests of these lands forced the remaining Vascons, including the core of the Basque peoples that would emerge from this period into the mountains and a defensive position. We often see the Frankish territory in this region referred to as the Duchy of Vasconia, which is a synonym of the Duchy of Gascony. Therefore all the terms Gascony, Vasconia, Vascons and Basques come from the same root word, even though they do not refer to the exact same thing. Going into the 6th and 7th centuries, and the remains of the Basques were somewhat sandwiched between Visigothic power to their south and Frankish power to their northeast. The Basques would periodically find themselves at odds with Gothic and Frankish forces, but they would still manage to avoid complete subjugation. The Basques would always have half an eye on extending their influence over the city of Pamplona, but certainly both Gothic and Frankish peoples would also have had an interest in controlling this strategically useful borderland city too. So it seems likely that control of this city may have fallen under the influence of all three parties at various stages throughout this period, but once again, direct evidence is scant. In the 8th century, the Visigothic kingdom was invaded from the south by Muslim peoples of the Umayyad Caliphate and it was quickly conquered with the Visigoths being very quickly overrun and pushed into a small area of land in the north of the Iberian Peninsula to the west of traditional Basque territory. This Visigothic rump state is referred to as Asturias, but we really don't know a lot about the impact of the Muslim invasion on the Basque people, although there is quite an intriguing story on which some modern historians cast a questioning eye with a suspicion of the story being created by later Muslim historians to validate the Muslim conquests of these lands. It concerns a person referred to as Count Cassius, Count Cassius was a member of the population of the Basque country, of noble status, but it is not suggested that he himself is of Basque origin, instead either being a Gothic nobleman or of Hispano-Roman origin, which was the dominant ethnicity of the population subjugated by the Visigoths three centuries previous. Travelling south from Pamplona and the next major city was Zaragoza, where we believe that Count Cassius may have been based and it was here that it is stated that he converted to Islam before making a pilgrimage to Damascus to pledge allegiance to the Umayyad Caliph. With Count Cassius said to be in control of an amount of land stretching into the modern Spanish community of Navarre, it meant close contact with the Basque people. Count Cassius's descendants would be referred to as the Banu Cassi dynasty by the Muslim chronicles. The area controlled by the Banu Cassi incorporated aspects of Basque and Muslim cultures, and this was the style of culture that existed in this area during the reign of King Charlemagne. Charlemagne. Charlemagne was a member of the Carolingian dynasty of Frankish kings who had descended from his grandfather Charles Martel, the mayor of the palace of the Frankish kingdoms, while under the ineffectual Merovingian monarchs. Being the son of Pepin the Short, Charlemagne's heritage was a strong and proud one and Charlemagne himself was no misfit in this line of strong leaders. He would prevail over his older brother, to obtain all the lands of his father. Charlemagne's ambitions seemed to be great and ones that concerned expansionism. He would move to secure the Duchy of Aquitaine, which had a union with the Duchy of Gascony, to ensure that he had control over the southern territories that bordered onto the Muslim territories south of the Pyrenees. Charlemagne did not need to take any further action on his southern frontiers at this stage. Preferring to deal with issues elsewhere, such as the Italian peninsula, where he conquered the Kingdom of the Lombards, and then in the Saxon territories to their northeast and the Bavarian territories to their east. Charlemagne maintained a strong relationship with the Pope even before the creation of the role of the Holy Roman Empire, which happened a long time after this period in question, anyway. By the time of Charlemagne's campaign into Al-Andalus, he would already have had built a reputation for being a ruthless leader and a powerful military statesman with an authoritative physical presence. Unknown Military Leader At this stage during our battle episodes, we would typically discuss the background of the military leader of the opponents in the battle in question. We have already introduced the Franks and their military leader, King Charlemagne. We have also introduced the Basques, but we don't know who their military leader was, and this can be attributed to a lack of knowledge and writing from this period that is typical in Europe after the age of the Romans until the emergence of scholarly scribes who became more frequent in the aftermath of the early medieval period where we often only have the rare writings from early Christian monasteries. The closest candidate that could be speculated as someone who could have had a hand in the battle and therefore in charge of the Basque people at this battle was the Duke of Gascony, Lupus II. Lupus II is strongly suggested to be of Basque origin due to his name which refers to the Latin name for the wolf and is quite a common name among the Basques due to their pagan traditions. Gascony was to some degree quite detached from Charlemagne's Frankish kingdom because despite being under the suzerainty of the Franks it was within living memory that the Duke of Aquitaine had escaped the aggressions of Charlemagne and fled to the Duchy of Gascony under the rule of Duke Lupus. Lucas was forced to surrender the Aquitanian Duke to Charlemagne to avoid the wrath of Charlemagne himself before Charlemagne went to concentrate his efforts elsewhere. It could make sense that when Charlemagne returned to Al-Andalus that the Basque people there considered Lupus II to be their ruler and therefore if Charlemagne did anything to upset the Basque people and it could have been at the instigation of Lupus II that a revenge attack took place. This is complete speculation, though, and it is purely based on Lupus II being the only known reasonable candidate for this role, with our limited historical knowledge. Prelude to the Battle The cities of Barcelona and Girona were ruled by a Muslim governor of Arabic origin called Suleiman al Arabi. Al Arabi is referred to as an Abbasid supporter. The Abbasids had pushed the Umayyads out of power in the Middle East and had taken over the Islamic Caliphate, but the Umayyads still controlled the Emirate of Cordoba, which was the natural successor to the Islamic realm of Al-Andalus, centred on the old Visigothic kingdom of Roman Hispania. So we can suggest that Al-Arabi may not have been on smooth terms with the Umayyads at Cordoba. It was due to this rocky relationship that Al-Arabi felt that he would become the target of the Umayyads due to his Abbasid sympathies, and so he decided that Charlemagne would make a great friend in the face of this threat, so he sent a delegation all the way to Paderborn, deep in the Frankish Empire, to befriend Charlemagne. Al Arabi offered his own submission to Charlemagne, but also that of the governors of Zaragoza and Uesca, believing that Charlemagne could help them to overthrow the Umayyads of Cordoba and bring it under Abbasid control. Charlemagne thought that this was a great opportunity and so he travelled with an army across the Pyrenees and headed towards the city of Zaragoza to receive the submission of his new Muslim friends. When he arrived at Zaragoza, the governor, a man called Hussein, refused to surrender the city to Charlemagne. Charlemagne would have likely been disappointed by this, believing that he would be allowed to enter the city Charlemagne chose to besiege the city as he had brought a considerable amount of force with him but he could not sustain the siege for much longer than a month meaning that Hussein was able to resist and Charlemagne would need to cut his losses and retreat Al-Arabi had accompanied Charlemagne up until this point and Charlemagne decided that Al-Arabi was going to stay with him Charlemagne decided that his army's energies would be better spent back up in Saxony so he would aim to go back north of the Pyrenees but he would initially lead his army north to the city of Pamplona. When Charlemagne reached Pamplona, he clearly expected the city to submit to him. The fusion of Basques and Muslims who lived in Pamplona decided that they would not roll over to Charlemagne which infuriated him again. This time, Charlemagne unleashed his fury on the city of Pamplona, sacking the city and removing all of its fortifications to prevent the city from becoming a military base from which the Basques or the Muslims could conduct raids and attacks on the southernmost Frankish territories. Charlemagne had decided that he wanted to possess these borderlands, but the population had other ideas. Charlemagne left Pamplona and headed north to cross the Pyrenees Mountains through a pass which is called Rencevaux Pass. Charlemagne's huge army would have traversed this pass in a long procession and it was as the Frankish army were disappearing through the pass that the Basques chose the time to take their revenge on the Franks for debilitating their city. The Battle of Roncevaux Pass By accounts, it is suggested that mountain attacks and ambushes were a specialist skill of the Basques, and we frequently find in history that peoples who live in and around hilly or mountainous terrain utilize their surroundings with expertise. Charlemagne's army had to go through the Pyrenees mountain pass in a long procession carrying all of their supplies, weapons and booty with them. It was a summer's evening in the year 778. Charlemagne's procession was well into the mountain pass with the back of the long train a considerable distance from the front and some distance from Charlemagne himself who was already deep into the pass. The lightly armoured Basque guerrilla warriors appeared from the cover of the dense forests of the narrow mountain pass and attacked the rear of the procession, who were carrying a lot of the supplies and raided treasures. Many of the Frankish warriors, who were surprise attacked, were hurled down the steep slopes into the valley where, disorientated and injured by their fall and hindered by their heavy armour, many were slaughtered by more Basque warriors. The Basques would not have the military power of the Franks, but with their expertise in the mountain passes and their lightweight armour and easy-to-carry spears, they were able to slaughter the Franks at the back of the procession with ease. Many of the Franks had no idea what they were contending with and fled deeper into the past to receive instruction from Charlemagne. Charlemagne sheltered overnight before attempting to locate the Basque army, but by the time the Franks went looking for them in order to launch a counterattack and reclaim some of their lost property, the Basques had long gone. Aftermath Charlemagne returned to Francia, and even though his army had been successfully attacked by the Basques, it was a lot more about the shame of the defeat to a militarily inferior group of people. Charlemagne paid a price for his disregard for the Vascons, and the combined cultures of Basques and Muslims who resided in the lands in and around Pamplona and seemingly had little desire to be involved in Charlemagne's issues with the governor at Zaragoza. Charlemagne would go on to make great advances and conquests in the name of his Frankish Empire and do amazing things for Frankish culture, advancing it in ways that had not been seen in Frankish lands since the times of the Romans. The borders of the Frankish Empire were extended to include lands that would take the Frankish Empire to its largest extent and the national advances in all things related to things such as law and Academia and the arts would give rise to a period in history called the Carolingian Renaissance. Charlemagne would become a talisman for the negative sentiment directed by the Pope towards the Byzantines when he proclaimed Charlemagne as the Holy Roman Emperor. The embarrassment of Rencevaux Pass became a distant memory. Charlemagne died in the year 814 and he was outlived by his chronicler a man called Einhard who would also serve as a wise old advisor to Charlemagne's son and successor Louis the Pious it wouldn't be until after Charlemagne's lifetime that Einhard decided to write about the events of Roncevaux Pass as part of his biography of Charlemagne's lifetime Einhard mentions the name of a commander who was with the baggage train at the back of the army procession called Roland. And the legend of Roland has taken on a life of its own since this time. During the 11th century, Roland became immortalised in a piece of medieval epic poetry called The Song of Roland, detailing the events of the battle of the Rinceveau Pass. Possibly written over 250 years after the event itself, it reflects more of the contemporary religious sentiments of Christendom as it headed towards the period of the Crusades by suggesting that the Antigonists were Muslims as opposed to Basques and that Charlemagne defeated the fleeing Muslims and took their land in the aftermath of the ambush that saw the death of Roland and his men. Charlemagne did return to the lands of the south of the Pyrenees and successfully created the Marque Spagna, otherwise called the Spanish March of the Frankish Empire. But it was after he had returned to his homelands and then he returned to take his revenge at a later time. The Spanish March would act as a buffer along the southern fringe of the Pyrenees and a means by which to protect Gascony and Septimania from Muslim incursions Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast the subject being the Battle of Roncesvalles, Pass and uh, a, pad- a battle that I I should say has become romanticised in the centuries following it and that's why uh, it's probably quite a famous medieval battle now uh, amongst all the very many battles that took place during medieval times and uh, it represents uh, maybe a a battle that could have been referenced by Crusaders as a great victory for um, a Christian emperor Charlemagne against Muslim oppositions, but we found out today that it really wasn't a battle between Christians and Muslims. It was, uh, it could be perceived in that manner, but strictly speaking, if you take a closer look at it, you'll realise that it's actually the Basques who are in this battle. And then we, what's amazing about the Basques is uh, we explored a little bit about them uh, how they came about and how their unique culture has prevailed through very, very many thousands of years and uh, and survived to become uh, an existing culture to this very day and a very, very proud um, nation of peoples are, the Basques. So, um, interesting episode, and a lot of factors to consider and take in and uh, thank you once again for listening. The Ancient World Cup. Well, we've finished all 16 of the Round 1 groups, but before we can progress into the knockout stages, there's a couple of points of business where uh, we've got a couple of sets of tied teams need to play off in order to find out who's going to fill the last two of those 32 knockout stage places. Now this week we had two teams in a playoff against each other and they were the israelites and the Sasanian persians so once again three forums uh, that this was put to the vote on on the Tapper Talk discussion forum on the facebook page and in uh, in the twitter feed so uh, everyone had their chance to vote and we've counted up all the votes from all the forums And here is the result. So the winner of the playoff between the Israelites and the Sasanian Persians, they had 56% of the vote. So it was a fairly close run thing. And the winners were the Sasanian Persians. So the Sasanian Persians will advance and they will play the Sumerians in uh, in the second round of the competition, the first knockout round. And uh, we say goodbye, unfortunately, to the Israelites. It was a close run thing, but uh, they didn't make it, and uh, they have to um, exit the competition, unfortunately. However, we still have one more spot to fill in the knockout stages, and it's going to be between two teams. They are the Judeans and the Scythians. So that will be next week's playoff game. So you will have to decide which one of those you want to go through. The winner, I believe, um, will play. um, I think the winner may play the Hephthalites, if I'm not mistaken. So um, that's next week. And uh, we'll look forward to voting. Should start in the next day or two. Listener messages and reviews. Now, don't forget, your support of this project is really important and uh, without your help, it wouldn't be as good as it is. I just simply wouldn't uh, be able to gather the resources and um, certainly the, the material required, not only for research but also for production uh, without your help. So I'm grateful to each and every one of you who does help. Um, Initially... The best thing you can do is rate and review the project i always read out your reviews i'm happy to read them out you've taken the time to write them so i'll always take the time to read them and uh, give you your your 15 seconds of fame let's say and um, that's my way of saying thank you to you for doing so um When you rate and review, you open the podcast up to more people and potential investors in the podcast, people who make financial donations and help me to produce the podcast going forward. So um, when those people who are kind enough to make any kind of financial contribution to the podcast come along, they're invited to become members of an exclusive club called the History of the World Podcast podcast illuminati and that is basically a club of people who can qualify for rewards depending on how much they accumulate in total donations in total lifetime donations you can get merchandise you can get rewards such as uh, episodes of your choice Um, there's a number of things that you can qualify for if you are a member of the history of the world podcast illuminati if that sounds interesting um, just simply go to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website, click on the Patreon link and register to make a monthly contribution to the podcast and, and really help me with this uh, incredible journey that we're all undertaking together here. Um, we do have some new members to the History of the World podcast, the Illuminati, people who have um, joined the cause this week and people who I need to thank. Their names are Lawrence Pollack, Sarah Herald, Mark O'Daniel, and Matthias C. Thank you, one and all, for your contributions. Now, then, listener messages equally important um, because it uh, it shows that you're interacting with the podcast. Remember that we have a discussion forum, so all of your um, all of your um, emails that maybe you know, worthy of further discussion should be posted there. And uh, uh, Lynn Eulish sent me a message this week, which would be ideal for the the discussion forum. She's put, Hi, Chris, I've been listening to your podcast since uh, I started a new teaching job this fall, 30 minutes from my home. I am all caught up and love how you present the stories. I wanted to share... A special coincidence in this week's podcast, Volume 4, Episode 17, you mentioned about the bride show for the king. This Wednesday night begins the Jewish holiday of Purim, which is based on the book of Esther. The story of Esther is one of a Jewish girl chosen in a bride show to be the queen of Persia by a king, Ashavarosh. Uh, which is a Hebrew pronunciation, I'm, I'm sure I haven't pronounced it well there, um, who is usually attributed to be Xerxes. I'm including the Wikipedia info to save myself from typing. The biblical book of Esther is set in the Persian capital of Susa in the third year of the reign of the Persian king Ahasuerus. The name Ahasuerus is equivalent to Xerxes, both deriving from the Persian Shayasha, And Ahasuerus is usually identified in modern sources as Xerxes I, who ruled between 486 and 460, 465 BCE. As it is this monarch that the events described in Esther are thought to fit the most closely, assuming that Ahasuerus is indeed Xerxes the first. The events described in Esther begin around the years 483-82 BCE and concluded in March 473 BCE. Kind of cool. Keep up the great work, Lynn. Thanks a lot, Lin. Um, and um, yeah, very interesting that to try and piece together. Um, some of the the aspects of history that are written down for us. Um, You know, goodness me, I mean, it's all we ever do is try and interpret information, isn't it, as historians, so it's very interesting to speculate. Uh, Thanks for such an interesting message. Uh, Ricard Helmston has written in and put, um, Hello, Chris, thank you for a great podcast. I've been listening to your expertise for countless hours the last year, but now you may want to listen to my expertise for five minutes. You said that your chair was creaking and that you oiled it with WD-40. WD-40, 556 and other light spray oils aren't for greasing squeaky things. You need a much thicker and stickier oil or grease for that. What WD-40 and 556 is more likely to do is actually to wash away what grease may have been there when the chair was new. It's also a very poor oil for bicycles and such things. What they are good for is getting into thin holes and removing rust and old dried grease. They're not for keeping things greased or oiled for a longer time. I'd look for a bike chain oil or a liquid spray grease if you want a spray can or simply some kind of grease, if you don't mind getting your uh, your fingers sticky best regards, Ricard H. Well, thank you, Ricard. Very kind of you to give me uh, your knowledge and expertise. I've certainly, um, I don't work in that field, so I don't really know much about it. All I know is that I bought um, a tin of WD-40 and it worked. That's all I can say to that. So um, before I get into trouble, Um, with the manufacturers of WD-40 for um, reading your email out I would hasten to add that it's done the trick so I don't know what else can I say but thank you for the helpful email there Um, Amir has, has written in but hi Chris I wanted to personally thank you for your podcast it was the first history podcast I ever listened to and I still think it's the best one a special thanks for your episode on the siege of Lachish. Now I'll I'll read this out. I I think I'm it's a very anglicized way of of saying Lachish when I say Lachish. I think it should be Lachish. Um so I'll go with that for a moment. I was born in Lachish and heard stories about the battle and about Sennacherib since childhood but I never acknowledged its importance and never heard about the Assyrian side of the story until I listened to your podcast. The way you brilliantly put together both sides of the story helped me put my childhood stories into historical context. Keep up the good work. I'm already waiting for your next episodes. So thanks again Amir from Israel. Well that's fantastic very kind of you and i'm ever so grateful great set of messages this week uh good fun to read out thank you so much to all of you who wrote in next week it's going to be another battle episode but we're going to be looking at um the the first sort of german kingdom if you like the you know we always think of germany as being quite a modern nation but of course its history is um, you know, intertwined with the Holy Roman Empire, um, and it's not just uh, you know a reference to Germanic people and then the modern state of Germany, but we have this kingdom of East Francia, which really was the first kingdom of Germany. So we're going to be talking about them next week and their battles with uh, the Hungarians from back at that time, who we who we refer to as the Magyars. Um, So the Magyars um, and the East Francians, the Germans, did battle in the 10th century at Lechfeld. And we're going to be looking at that next week. So really looking forward to that. Thanks for uh, joining me this week. Look forward to seeing you next week. And until then, be good. The History of the World podcast. Written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the history of the website and clicking on the patreon link email the show at history of the world podcast at mail.com and don't forget to join our social media at facebook twitter instagram and tumblr See you next time.